If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're continuing our series through the Heidelberg Catechism. And at this point in the Catechism, it's been going through the various articles of the Apostles' Creed, dealing with the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus Christ not only died, but on the third day was raised from the dead, that he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And so today we want to consider what we mean when we confess that Jesus Christ ascended and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And here in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul explains to us Christ's ascension and what it means for the church at present and what it means for the church uh, still to come in the future when Christ comes again. What is Christ doing today at the right hand of God in heaven? And so we'll see that from 1 Corinthians 15. We'll read just verses 20 through 28. Uh, there is a lot here. This is one of the densest chapters in all the Bible. Um, even reflecting on this made me want to do maybe even a, a series of sermons through 1 Corinthians 15 uh, to work through this somewhat slowly. But, um, so that's to say we won't cover everything here, uh, but we want to get some of the main ideas, especially in verses uh, 24 and 25 regarding the ascension of Christ. So 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 20, this is the holy and inspired word of God. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So far from God's holy word. We're going to turn now to the catechism in the back of the hymnal we sang from, uh, to Lord's Day 17. And you'll find that on page 879. 879. Again, uh, this portion of the catechism is dealing with the ascension of Jesus Christ. Rather, Lord's Day 18, I should say. Lord's Day 18. There's a number of questions here. We won't be, again, dealing with everything that's said here. If you have any questions afterwards, feel free to ask. But we'll read uh, these questions. I'll read the question, and we'll respond together with the answers. So beginning with question 46 under Lord's Day 18. What do you mean by saying he ascended to heaven? That Christ, while his disciples watched was taken up from the earth into heaven and remains there on our behalf until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. But isn't Christ with us until the end of the world as he promised us? Christ is the true man and true God. In his human nature, Christ is not now on earth, but in his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is never absent from us. 
If his humanity is not present wherever his divinity is, then aren't the two natures of Christ separated from each other? Certainly not. Since divinity is not limited and is present everywhere, it is evident that Christ's divinity is surely beyond the bounds of the humanity that has taken on. But at the same time, his divinity is in and remains personally united to his humanity. Last question, how does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us? First, he is our advocate in heaven in the presence of his Father. Second, we have our own flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ, our head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. Third, he sends his spirit to us on earth as a corresponding pledge. By the Spirit's power, we seek not earthly things, but the things above, where Christ is, sitting at God's right hand. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we confess that Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our covenant mediator, has ascended into heaven as our King, as our priest, and as our prophet. I think often when we think of the ascension of Jesus Christ, we rightfully so often focus upon his kingship, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that when Christ ascends into heaven, he ascends not only as our king and not only as the ruler of the kings of the earth, the one in whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given, but that he also ascends as our prophet and as our priest. And that's reflected here in the Catechism when it speaks of Christ interceding for us in his priestly ministry in the heavenly temple. And yet, as I say that, I still want to focus uh, this morning on the kingship of Christ and the reign of Christ as it's described to us here in 1 Corinthians 15. Specifically, I want to think about three points. First, the coronation, the conquest, and the consummation of Christ's kingship. So the coronation the conquest, and the consummation of Christ's kingship. And all of these things have to do, of course, with the fact that Christ has ascended out of visible sight from us, beyond the veil of heaven where he sits at the right hand of God as the king of the universe. And so we'll work briefly through these three points. Again, much more can be said, but these uh, catechism sermons are usually quite brief here. So first, we want to think about the coronation of Christ. The ascension of Jesus Christ is, as has been said before, his coronation. It is his enthronement. When Christ was raised from the dead at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, he says to his disciples these uh, great words. He says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If you're a good reader, a close reader of, of God's word, and if you read through the Gospel of Matthew up to that point, you would notice that there is this conflict between heaven and earth throughout Matthew's Gospel. You have what comes from heaven, but then the earth does not want to receive it. There's this enmity, there's this conflict, but now that Christ has come, that he has died and been raised, in him, heaven and earth are again united. And he takes up his throne, a kingship over heaven and earth to bring about harmony and peace, at least to inaugurate such things, to begin the process of the restoration of the unity of heaven and earth. And when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, it's interesting that if you were to read it in the original Greek, uh, the very first word that Jesus speaks in that sentence is actually the verb has been given. Uh, you could also translate it, given to me 
is all authority in heaven and on earth. And the reason you would often put the word first in Greek is kind of like what we would do, italicizing a word or putting a word in bold font. Jesus is highlighting the fact that this authority has been given to him. And we've seen in previous weeks that it's been given to him because of his humility, because he humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant and being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God, God has highly exalted him. In his resurrection, Jesus Christ is given. He has conferred upon him from the Father in heaven all authority in heaven and on earth. This is the basic reality that Paul is reflecting upon and writing from. Paul, as he looks out at the world around him and writes this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, he is writing from the perspective that Jesus Christ is today the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And therefore, the ascension of Jesus Christ was necessary. Where else could one who has all authority in heaven and on earth reign but at the right hand of the Father in heaven? It is his rightful place. It is the proper place where the king of heaven and earth ought to be at the Father's right hand in heaven. And therefore, as Paul reflects upon the coronation of Christ and his ascension, he makes uh, plain the reality that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, is already a present reality. That it's not something future, purely, but rather it is a present reality. That the kingdom of God was inaugurated. It began with the first coming of Christ in his death, resurrection, and ascension. This so much is true. Uh, For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, we didn't read this verse. But if you go down to verse 50, Paul again here speaks of the kingdom of God related, of course, to the reign of Christ as a present reality. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Gerhardus Voss says that this verse proves that the kingdom of God begins with the coming of Christ and the resurrection of the righteous. Therefore, the kingdom of Christ must so far be distinguished from the kingdom of God, uh, which lies before the parousia. So his point here is saying that the kingdom of God has begun in the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. It was his coronation. And that today, Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That brings us to our second point, the conquest. What then is Christ, as the one who has been enthroned in the heavens, reigning there, God's right hand, doing at present? What is he doing at present? And this is the main focus that Paul has in verse 23 in chapter 15. He says there, rather going back to verse 23, he says this, Regarding the conquest of Christ, he says that each in his own order are to be raised, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, a lot can be said about this passage here, but let me set it up by way of a contrast. There are a number of people who have read this passage and said that this is a a programmatic text for the Christianization of the nations of the world. 
It says here that Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And they assume in this text that what is told us here is that the nations as political entities will be Christianized until the whole world finds itself in a sort of golden age. Now the problem with that reading of this text is that when Paul speaks about, as he says at the end of verse 24, every rule and every authority and every power, when Paul speaks of such things, rule, authority, and power, he has in mind not uh, human enemies and human powers, but rather he has in mind superhuman enemies. He has in mind spiritual enemies. For example, in Colossians uh, chapter 2, Paul uses similar language where he speaks of Christ triumphing in his resurrection. So in Colossians chapter 2, it says there, verse uh, 13, just read a couple verses. It says, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. What are these rulers and authorities that Christ triumphed over at the cross but spiritual enemies of the cross of Christ? Gerhardus Voss says this, that, that these, um, those, uh, these entities spoken of as rulers, authorities, and powers moves us in the superterrestrial sphere of the world of spirits so that, um, and so that scarcely can be counted among the prognostics of the approaching crisis that it consists of happenings unobservable by men. All right, so the point that's being said here is that Christ's present reign is that he is subduing these spiritual enemies of the cross of Christ and that it goes unseen. This also was the very interpretation of John Chrysostom back in the late 300s, long ago. He had said this, But what rule then does he say that Christ puts down? That of the angels? Far from it. That of the faithful? Neither is it this. What rule then? That of the devils concerning which he says, and Chrysostom ties this with Ephesians 6 verse 12, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, why then is Paul emphasizing the fact that during the reign of Christ at present, that he is subduing these spiritual enemies? Because it is these enemies that are opposed to his church. And therefore, What Paul is teaching us here is that Christ keeps his church secure even against the overwhelming forces of evil that stand against it. Paul is explaining further Jesus' promise that the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. The point is not a political agenda here of the Christianization of the world, but the security of his church as it goes and lives faithfully Uh, for Christ and advancing his gospel as he draws all men and women from the nations of this world. That's the point of what he is getting at um, in this chapter here, that Christ reigns over the very enemies that would seek to destroy the church of God. One more text just to see this, because it's a 
um, something important to the Apostle Paul, but something that we don't often think about. But he says this in 1 Timothy, reflecting on this reality and the enemies, uh, the powerful enemies that stand against the church today. He says this in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. He says, The Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, and so on from there. Again, Paul recognizes that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, spiritual darkness that stands against the church. And his point then is to say again that Christ's ascension into heaven means that he is at present subduing such enemies from overcoming and overtaking his church. And therefore, the gates of hell shall not prevail. Gates in Jesus' day were symbols of great strength. It was, the, uh, it was a symbol of strength. And therefore, the very strength of hell and all of its forces, whether authorities and rulers and principalities, even death itself, will not overcome his church. And therefore, Christ is today, as our king in heaven, subduing our enemies, subduing the spiritual forces opposed to his gospel and his church, that we might then stand secure in this world and go forth in the power of his spirit. Again, one more point just to see this reality. Paul speaks of every rule and every authority and every power as enemies, right? He says in verse 25, he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, right? Of those enemies, the rulers and authorities and powers, death is part of that. Again, a spiritual power at work. Even later in 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul will personify death. Oh, death, where is your sting? In Romans chapter 5, Paul will again personify death as that which came in and set up reign over the creation. You can look at that very briefly, Romans chapter 5, before we come to our final point here. Paul says, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... So death spread to all men because all men sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned, right? You see the personification, death reigning from Adam to Moses. And what Paul is proclaiming here in 1 Corinthians 15 is the undoing of death's reign in the ascension of Jesus Christ. Death as the final boss uh, that must be overcome and defeated, Jesus Christ will, su- uh, will subject all lesser enemies until he finally overcomes death itself when he returns and raises his people from the dead. When is death overcome finally? When are the enemies of Christ finally subdued? At the return of Christ, at the end of the age, when he will raise his people to new life, never to die again, but to partake of his eternal Life, And so we can see then what Christ is doing at present. And this can be seen, not with our physical eyes, but by eyes of faith as we trust God's word. What Christ is doing today is far more powerful, far greater than we can perceive. He is keeping the enemies of God who would oppose his church and overrun and destroy it at bay. He is subjecting them. And therefore, we have great confidence 
and that no longer does death reign, but now the Son of God, Jesus Christ our King, reigns. His ascension is, again, the undoing, the overthrowing of death's reign and the coming of a new reign of life that begins in his church and ones that we acknowledge even today. Right, so we've seen the coronation, the, um, the conquest, a spiritual conquest of Christ. And finally, we want to then think about the consummation. This is what Paul says as the purpose and the goal of all of these things at the end of verse 28. He says, When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that... For the purpose of, with the goal of, that God may be all in all. The basic point here is saying that Christ has ascended into heaven. He is subduing his enemies, guarding and protecting his church, even at present, until the day of his return, in for the glory of God the Father. The glory of God is the highest goal and that Christ is currently why Christ for why Christ has ascended, that God may be all in all. And this is the very focus then of his church. As Christ protects us, as Christ guards us, he does so and that, that he might give us hope that one day God will be all in all. No longer enemies opposed to his gospel and his work and his great name, but in that day when every enemy is subdued, then... God will be, as it says, all in all. The glory of God is the highest end. And the greatest uh, confession of ours when we confess that Christ has ascended into heaven. Yes, it secures us, as we said. Yes, it keeps us until that day of Christ's return. And we have great confidence. But the ultimate end for Christ is the consummation of all things to the glory of God the Father, that God may be all in all. So until that day, we as the people of God seek his glory in all things. We desire to bring our lives and all that we are a part of under submission uh, to Jesus Christ and his rule. And we do so again with that great end in mind that one day God will be all in all because Christ has been coronated, he has been raised and enthroned at the right hand of God in heaven that he is conquering all his enemies, every rule and authority and power. Death itself will be overcome, and on that day when he raises his people from the dead to enter into eternal life, it's then that God will be all in all. And so here the Apostle Paul gives us a, a, a sweeping, breathtaking view of the history of the world from the present to the end and into eternity when the glory of God will shine never to fade again. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ, our King, raised into heaven, seated at your right hand. Thank you that he guards us against enemies that we are often unaware of and ones that we even cannot see. Those who would overrun and overrule and and, uh, destroy the very church of Christ. Thank you that we are safe under his wings. Father, we pray then that as his people we would rest secure in him. That we would be confident and bold in sharing the gospel of Christ. And that we would do so with our eyes fixed upon that coming day when Christ returns, raises his people from the dead, brings us into eternal life, and your glory shines forth forevermore. And that we will bask in the light of it 
um, unending. Father, thank you for this great hope that we have, grounded in the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead. He has ascended, and he is coming again. We pray this in his name. Amen.